All right, continuing on through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6, 15 through 773 is where we're going to be this morning. We have some serious ground to cover, but don't get too nervous. Don't get too nervous. So we have some Bibles available in the seats there, and so if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, just grab one of those in the seats. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that one home. It's our gift to you. And then we also have scripture up here on the screen for you, and uh, We've been spending the entire fall uh, walking through the book of Nehemiah. I love this book. It's just loaded, loaded with all kinds of truth that we can apply to our lives today. And so we've gleaned principles on uh, leadership, principles on prayer, on planning, on repentance, on urban renewal, on unity, on mission, clarity, and focus, and vision. And today, we get to see victory. And so I I want us to compare victories in our own lives, in our own uh, world, uh, to the victory of Nehemiah, and how he responds to his victory, and how we uh, might respond to the victories that we see in our own lives. And so uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 is where we're going to be. But first, I want to catch everybody up to speed about what's going on. Some of you are familiar. Some of you maybe aren't familiar. Maybe you missed a few weeks. I want to catch up to speed. Nehemiah is a Jewish man living in Susa. It's the capital of the Persian Empire. He works specifically for the king. God comes to Nehemiah in his heart and burdens him for the city of his ancestry, uh, the city of his roots, Jerusalem. This city, Jerusalem, has a real special place on God's map because this city, uh, by God, was intended and designed to model to the world uh, a city that was centered on the glory of the Lord. It would show the world what it might look like if God's people together collectively would live with him at the focus center, that the Lord would infiltrate every aspect of their life and their community. And so that is Jerusalem. The problem is, is that the physical community is in ruins and the spiritual community is in ruins. Fortunately, God comes to Nehemiah, puts this burden on his heart to build this wall back around the city. It would fortify the city and it would then make it possible for the restoration of the city because now it's fortified, now it's protected, and the city can be restored physically and spiritually. Jerusalem had been a mess for 141 years after being besieged, attacked, ransacked by Babylon. But Babylon is no longer the major world empire. Persia is, yet the city is still in ruins. There's been 141 years worth of failed attempts to rebuild, completely unsuccessful, until God raises up this Nehemiah, burdens him. Uh, Nehemiah is a prayerful man who is used of God in a great way. I want to recap what God has done. Think with me specifically about the things that God has done. First of all, while God's city lies in ruins, God is raising up this slave, this servant in Susa, Nehemiah, raising him through the ranks, bringing him to a place where he has now risen the ranks and he is right beside the king as a trusted servant employee of the king. He is uh, the, basically the wine uh, taste tester, the cup bearer to the king so that if somebody tried to poison the king, Nehemiah would drink it and die and therefore the king wouldn't touch the wine. So he kind of had a great job in that he could drink a lot of wine, but a bad job in that with any cup of wine he could die. And God had risen him through the ranks, and now he's right there beside the king. So that when God stirs his heart, now nobody else could have stirred his heart. This is 141-year-old news. It's old news, but God stirs his heart in a fresh way for his city. And Nehemiah then 
responds by asking the king who he is strategically by God's providential hand working for if he could take a 12-year paid leave of absence. How about that? Anybody want that? Try that on Monday morning. Hey, can I take a 12-year paid leave of absence to build the city of Jerusalem? And the king says, yes. I mean, talk about a miracle. I mean, that is an absolute miracle. There is no, not even being funny, that is a miracle. And so Nehemiah, while the king is feeling generous, says, well, okay, in that case, can I also have a royal hall pass so that when I go to and from Jerusalem to do the work that I need to do, that I can just show letters from you, the king, saying that I have permission to do that. And the king says, okay, you got it. And then Nehemiah says, well, in that case, while you're at it, uh, from your royal forest, can I have lumber to uh, support the, the building? And the king says, done. In all, the king does all of this, and he ends up providing transportation and military protection for the journey. I mean, this is absolutely amazing stuff that God has done. God is moving. It's been a phenomenal journey to this point. We're now halfway through the book. Uh, We'll be a little over halfway through the book when we're finished here today. So God is doing some phenomenal things, but there is still opposition. And some of you can look back in your life and you can see, man, there's some things that God has done in my life, some incredible things that God has done in my life. But there has also been some opposition all along the way. For him, it's been uh, guys like Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, the Ammonites, Arabs, and others. But Nehemiah, in the midst of all this opposition coming at him, he prays and he presses on in the mission and God shows himself faithful. I want to show you this. Check out Nehemiah 6. We'll go 15 through 19 for starters here. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. All right, here's where we're at. Verse 15, did you catch that? Because it went really fast. The wall is completed. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I think, that's it? That's all you're going to give me? The wall's completed? I mean, this entire book has been leading up to this moment. We're building the wall. We're building the wall. God's moving. We're building the wall. And then all of a sudden, the wall is finished. And Nehemiah simply says, so the wall is finished. And that's it. And then he moves right into talking about the response of his enemies because the wall is finished. I mean, at first read, I'm kind of hoping, well, I wish he would have been like Luke. I mean, you read through the New Testament and you read what Luke writes. He records the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And he's known for just going into real vivid detail. And at first read, I think, I kind of wish he would be like Luke. But instead, Nehemiah simply says, the wall's finished. I I think uh, Luke is a lot like my son Isaiah. So Isaiah will come home from school and I'll say, hey buddy, so what'd you do at school today? And he'll say something like, well, uh, you dropped me off and then I walked in the front door, I walked down the hall, I went to my class, I put my book bag on the hook and then I sat down. No, 
Then I went to the restroom, and then I sat down, and then Miss Collinette said, class, did you do your homework? And I said, yes, I did at 5.55 last night, right at the kitchen. And he just goes, the boy does not miss a single detail. I mean, that is, if you know him, that's, he just doesn't miss a detail. It wasn't uh, long ago that his, his grandmother, and he, they went on a walk, and she, he thought it was great. I get to go on a, a walk with my grandmother up to the center of town and back, and she came back, and she just glossed over it. Said, well, was, what was it like? Well, I didn't say a word. I just listened the entire. I just told me about some movie and every single detail. On the other hand, there's my son, Luca. And so on the way home from church today, as I generally do, I'll say, so Luca, what did you learn about in River Kids in class today? And he'll simply go, God. That's it. That's all he gives me. That's it, buddy. I mean, you learned about, well, I'm glad you're learning. And that's Nehemiah, right? The, Nehemiah is, okay, the, the wall has been in ruin for 141 years. And how many days did it take Nehemiah and team to build the wall? 52 days. 141 years, 52 days. No modern machinery, tons of opposition along the way, and they build it in 52 days. That's the big dig in 52 days. And it's just absolutely phenomenal. I think that took us, what, two centuries or something. And then it was a mess after the fact. Hey, Nehemiah, how did it feel? You know, how did you feel? That's what I wonder. When, when you put the last stone on the wall, what was it like for you in your heart? I mean, what, what was going on? He goes, felt good. Hey, Luca, how was school today? It was good. Anything else? Well, okay, yeah. Verses 16 through 19. Let me tell you about the enemies. He doesn't even talk about himself. He doesn't even give much. No, no, Nehemiah, this is your moment in the spotlight. Tell me about you. Tell me about yourself. And Nehemiah says, no, no. Has this project ever been about Nehemiah? Never been about Nehemiah. Has Nehemiah ever taken the credit for the things that have happened? No. Who has he been giving credit to all along the way? God, God. God, let me give you a sampling of this. We'll put some scripture up on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. The king's favor and provision because of, he says, he says, because of the good hand of God. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. He rallies the people and he says, I told them it was because of the, the good hand of my God that has been upon me. Nehemiah 4, 15. The work resumes after opposition. and He declares it's because God had frustrated their plan, not because I pulled it together. Nehemiah 4.20, he pulls this brilliant battle plan together, and he says, our God will fight for us, so that if they win, it's not, wow, Nehemiah, that was a great plan. No, it was, if they win, God was fighting for us. Think back on your own life, if you will, for a moment. Think back on the, the victories of your own life. Maybe it's a degree, an honor, an internship, a fellowship, a professorship, a job, a promotion, Financial victory, relational victory, your child is walking with God, your child gets some accolade in school, you have some kind of spiritual success, somebody, their life has changed as a result of you spending time with them, a mission that you set out to accomplish is accomplished, your own faithfulness in walking with the Lord. Think through that historically speaking in your own life. And who gets the credit? Who do you give the, the credit to? Is it yourself? Or historically has it been to God? 
And some might say, come on, Josh. I mean, doesn't God want us to, to get a little love and attention sometimes for, for the hard work? In my own personal reading, I've been going through the book of Isaiah. And I read this week, Isaiah 48, verse 11. God says this. He says, my glory I will not give to another. He says, I will not give to another. You feel the rub a little bit when you hear that? Does that kind of rub you? We're human, so you can admit, yeah, there, there's a little bit of a rub there. Why is there a rub there? Why do you feel the sandpaper? It's because of the sin in our hearts, right? We want attention. We want credit for what we have done. Or maybe it seems noble, but we want somebody else to get attention and credit for what they have done. God says, no, I will not give my glory to another. And at first glance, it might seem like, come on. People work hard. You don't want to give them credit. And there's a difference between honor and glory. There are people who are to be honored. Honor your father and mother. They work really hard to raise you, right? And even if they don't do so great, find something that you can honor in father and mother. There's, there's honor in the scripture. But he's talking glory here. He says, I will not give my glory to another. And if you can think about this for a moment, if God allows his glory to go to another person, if God says, no, let's go ahead, go ahead, look at this person, exalt this person, he's protecting us because he knows that they will disappoint. He knows in his nature, he is God and he will not disappoint. So he says, fix eyes on that which is glorious, on he who is phenomenal, amazing, perfect, without fault. You will find joy and fulfillment and strength and hope when your eyes are on him alone. Do not look to faulty things. And so his glory, he will not give for another. C.S. Lewis, some of you know him. Chronicles of Narnia, a great philosopher of the 20th century. And he wrote, before coming to know the Lord, he said, I felt like God is this nagging old woman. He said, I read through the scriptures and I read through the Psalms and those Psalms are, you know, they're inspired of the Lord, right? So I know that it's apparently Christians believe that God is speaking these words and I hear through the Psalms, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. And I just hear a nagging old woman saying, give me credit, praise me, look at me, look at me. He says, but then when he came to know the Lord, he said, it clicked. That's not a nagging old woman. That's God saying, focus your attention on the most marvelous, incredible thing that you could focus your attention on. And I say that out of love for you. That's why he wants you to fix your eyes on him. That's why he wants his glory to be given to him and not to anyone else. Nehemiah could have said, pretty good, huh? 52 days, what do you think about that? What's up, Tobiah? But he remains silent. He doesn't tell us much. He just says the wall is finished. And what we need to see is that Nehemiah is a very humble man. Just a humble man. Whenever there's a massive win in this book, we simply get, it was the help of our God. God's hand was upon me. What about himself? Crickets. Nothing. Let's compare this to his enemies. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid and fell in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work has been accomplished with the help of our God. Now, throughout this book, we have noticed many prayers of Nehemiah all along the way. 
And we've seen that Nehemiah prays these big, massive, crazy, audacious kinds of prayers. Things like, really? You want to pray that? Like that? That's kind of a big ask there. But he prays these things so that when God comes through, it's clearly God. It's clearly God's work and not man's work. And that's exactly what happens, right? When God comes through, in 52 days, the people are baffled. Right? So that they determine this work has been accomplished by God. Not Nehemiah. There's, there's no way that a man could pull this thing off. Big dig, 52 days, crazy. This was God. They just say this was God. Now, I want you to notice some key language here in this particular verse, in verse 16. It really reflects the whole of Scripture. When the, when the enemies and other nations heard the news, it says that they fell, they fell in their own esteem. This is a clear example of Proverbs 16, 18, which I would encourage you to memorize if you want to memorize Scripture. So hey, as we talked about earlier, these little kids are memorizing Scripture. Come on, guys, we can do this. Let's pull it off. Let's memorize some Scripture. And this isn't the kind of Scripture memory that these kids are doing. It's not, you know, hey, we'll give you a cookie if you can recite your verse after looking at it 30 seconds ago. No, these are kids are coming back. Hey, give us your verse from last week. And mom and dad aren't at home helping them walking through the Scriptures with them. They're just showing up and saying, here's the verse. And we're being blown away so memorize this one and uh hope you feel guilty if you don't love you all right proverbs 16 18 pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before what fall before a fall so if you're prideful and if you exalt yourself what does he say is coming destruction a fall let me illustrate with you if i if i can so Throughout this story, Nehemiah places himself kind of at the, at the bottom shelf. And I'll, I'll illustrate it with uh, an end for Nehemiah, if we can. And Nehemiah, throughout the story, just kind of, he's a humble man. He puts himself right there at the bottom shelf. That's how Nehemiah rolls. It's not me, 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 me. It's just, I'm going to be down here, and I'm just going to proceed with my mission. And, and listen, leadership is servanthood. So if you're a leader, it's servanthood and he serves the people by leading them today wrongfully many many people think that leadership is an example to to flex power and to exalt yourself there are many chauvinistic husbands out there that will look at the bible and say okay i'm supposed to lead therefore that means it's an excuse for me to be lazy and that's garbage in the scripture our leader is jesus right and he works hard And he serves us to the point of death. Philippians 2 will say, yeah, death on a cross. So Philippians 2 says, yeah, he serves us to the ultimate end. Not just death, but the most torturous kind of death imaginable. Death on a cross. That was the leadership of Jesus. Some of the most powerful examples examples of servant leadership we get from the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about Jesus uh, when he kneels down to wash the feet of his disciples. When we hear servant leadership, I think that's what probably comes to mind washing the feet of physically dirty men wearing sandals through a dusty region of the world and spiritually dirty men, one who will betray him, one who will deny him. That's Jesus serving. How about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane? The weight of the cross, the weight of separation from his Father upon him. And he's praying so fervently and just feeling the burden of leadership that he's sweating drops of blood. Leadership is a burden to bear. It's a burden. Or ultimately Jesus himself hanging upon a cross. That's how he leads us. He leads by 
serving. And so Nehemiah and ultimately Jesus lower themselves, lower themselves and, and serve. Nehemiah has insult after insult after insult, threatens for not just insult but injury as well. They want to hurt him. They want to, they want to take him out. On the other hand, there's the enemies, and we'll give them an E. And what do they do? The enemies say, well, we're just going we're gonna to be about the exaltation of self. We're going to put ourselves at the top. And we're just going to point down at Nehemiah. We're going to mock Nehemiah. Meanwhile, they're just blabbing their mouth. They're yakking. And what's he doing? He's working hard. And he's praying. And he's serving. And he's being insulted. And he's being laughed at. He's being mocked. People within his own ranks aren't saying, let's do this. This is awesome. They start then cheating each other for money. And it's a mess. And he calls them to account. I mean, it's just crazy stuff that, that Nehemiah is doing while these guys trying to make themselves look good and trying to make Nehemiah look awful. Lots of enemies that he has. But Proverbs will tell us what? Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And so when our weak and feeble hands kind of try to place ourselves up here, like whatever that looks like in your life, when you try to kind of exalt yourself and make yourself look good. And aren't there plenty of avenues to do that today? Plenty of avenues, more than ever in history. We can go online or on our cell phone and say things to make ourselves look wonderful. And he says, pride comes before the fall. And When you're up here, it's easy to fall. It's easy to fall. Nehemiah is still down there, the base at the foundation, rock solid, serving and giving and, and loving and following the Lord. Leaders, if you're in it for the name and the fame and the recognition and the glory and self-exaltation, fall is coming. A fall is coming. Whether on this side of the grave, and a lot of times I think we'd kind of rather people fall on this side of the grave so that we could see it. Like, yeah, you got what's coming, right? But sometimes the fall's not coming on this side of the grave. It won't come until the other side of the grave. But it is coming. It is coming. And some of us have seen the fall, the destruction of a leader who has sought to exalt themselves. Some of you? You can think of examples of that in your own life. Maybe some of you have moved forward in something very prideful and exalted yourself, and you can look back and you saw how you fell. A handful of years ago, I sat down with a Christian leader he had done this, what we're doing. He had started a church and took off, started getting asked to go to all these conferences and speak all over the, the country. And, and there's a guy who's saying, well, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to start a church for Boston. Let's sit down. And we sat down together and we talked to church planting, started talking about t- starting churches. And I remember feeling, after leaving and talking with my wife, I remember feeling like, Back when I was talking to this guy, something was off. I mean, something, just the arrogance and the haughty spirit, you know, something was just off. That's why when we look at the qualifications for leaders in uh, Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, it says that he must not be a new convert. Because you rise the ranks too quickly, be careful. Put somebody in leadership when they're not ready. It's, it's dangerous. And I remember saying, something just seems off. This guy was a superstar in the Christian world, took off. But not long after that meeting, 
comes out, he's busted, cheating on his wife with his secretary. And I remember just thinking, this is unreal. Everybody wanted him to talk. Everybody saw him, and he kind of had this spirit of, I'm up here, look at me. And yet, destruction, fall, great fall. When you get to the top, and you're at the top thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, you think you can do whatever you want, I'm telling you what, you're very prone to fall. When you think you're indestructible is often when you're most destructible. So I love to hear people who share thoughts of repentance and they're really humble and I'm not perfect and I don't have it together. The church is not the place where you show up and pretend like you got it together. Christians are not people who have it together. Christians are people who realize I don't have it together. Jesus has it together. I trust in him. I don't trust in self. When I stand before the throne, I say it was Jesus, not me. I did not earn this. That's what sets our faith apart from every other faith on the planet. Is that every other faith on the planet is if you're good enough, hopefully you can get up to the top and you can reach heaven. Reflective of in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel, if we can just work our way to God. Never can you work your way to God. Never can you work your way to God. Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. And the destruction and the wreckage of this man, the carnage of a wife, broken. And kids, a family, broken. And a great big church full of lots of new believers who turn and run from the Lord because... They were following after someone who wasn't following after the Lord. A lot of destruction. And these enemies of God had been taunting Nehemiah all along the way, hadn't they? Just taunting Nehemiah. But they fell. They fell greatly here. It fell on their esteem and they realized, man, we were, I think we were wrong about this. And again, some will fall on this side of the grave. You might see it. Do not delight in that. Don't say, yeah, you got what's coming. Be broken about that. Let it remind you that you too need to be humble. And others will fall on the other side of the grave. But remember what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 7, the parable of the, the sand and the house built on the sand and the parable of the house built on a rock. He says, if you don't build your life on Jesus and put your faith in him and not in yourself, you will fall and what? Great will be your fall. There will be destruction. There will be wreckage. Do not trust in self. Trust in the Savior. On the contrary, here's what we're to do. First Peter chapter 5 verse 6 is a, a wonderful, wonderful verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, what? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So, like Nehemiah, we put ourselves here. We don't put ourselves here. We put ourselves here, and at the proper time, he might exalt you, which may be on this side of the grave, or it may be in eternity. But let him at the proper time exalt you. Let him exalt you. That's why Jesus will also say, here's a parable for you. Some of you are going to want to go and sit right beside the man at the head of the table, and you're going to put yourself there. And how humiliating will it be when he says, oh, I'm sorry, that's for somebody else. Go sit over there. Rather, sit yourself over here, and if he wants you to sit there, how cool would it be if he said, hey, come on, sit by me, right? Scripture is just loaded with this kind of language. 
Great will be the fall. Pride comes before destruction. Haughty spirit before the fall. Don't be humiliated and asked to sit in the seat of shame because you put yourself in the seat of privilege. Scripture's dripping with this kind of language. But Nehemiah said, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to work. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. And God says, and at the proper time, the proper time, I'm going to put you right here and mission accomplished. The wall is built and everybody else, they fall in their esteem. And does God put Nehemiah here so that everybody can go, yeah, Nehemiah. No, he says, I put you here so that you can say, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. So our successes are, it was Jesus, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from who? From above, the scripture says, from the Lord. So let God at the proper time exalt you. Put yourself at the bottom. You serve, you serve. And God exalts him at the proper time. What does Nehemiah do from this position, chapter 7 and 8? You're going to see. He just makes much of God, much of God, much of God, much of God, and not himself. Before we look there, let's look at the tail end of chapter 6. So after the fall of the enemies of God, they're silenced. Go through the rest of the book. Many of these guys you hear nothing about any longer. Their perspective is God wins. The wall is built. I'll shut up. I mean, what more can they say, right? I mean, it's okay, yeah. They said, your wall is weak. You know, if a fox jumps on it, it's going to crumble. They're just mocking him, trying to stop it, and it happens. And they're like, all right, we'll be quiet. Some of you, you've got a, voices in your life that are just coming at you, mocking you. They're, they're opposing you. They are opponents. But when God gives that victory, they're silent. Some of you have seen that. They just, they're not talking any longer. God has given the victory. But is it always that easy? No. There are going to be Tobias in our lives. And what we see here, and what we see through the rest of the books, is that everybody else is silence except for Tobiah. Tobiah keeps talking. He doesn't stop. I mean, the guy has been put in his place, but he just keeps nagging. You got that person? They just keep at you. It's like, come on, for real? I mean, haven't you seen the fruit of this? They're at you. They're at you. They're at you. He's unsupportive. Verses 17 through 19 tell us that Tobiah, who's an Ammonite, had married into the nation of Israel. He married into nobility, and so did his son. And so some of the nobles thought, hey, Tobiah is great. We love this guy. It says they spoke good of his deeds in front of Nehemiah. Can you imagine being Nehemiah? And everybody else is talking great about this guy that you know is out to get the mission of God. Can you imagine how much that would get up under your, your skin? They're talking great of Tobiah. And meanwhile, it says that Nehemiah is receiving these threatening letters from this man, Tobiah. And all the way through chapter 13, even right in chapter 13, Tobiah doesn't stop. However, Nehemiah doesn't stop either. And let me say this. You're going to have them. You're going to have them. But there comes a point where you ignore them. And you just keep moving forward. You say they're not going to be supportive. And they're not even going to stop talking even when the victories come. But I'm going to press forward with the mission that God has given me. And Nehemiah's mission was the restoration of this city, that it might be a God-glorifying city once again. It's all about God's glory in this city. Now, let's read on. Seven, we'll read one through five. He says, Now, 
when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And when they are still standing guard, let them shut the door and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at uh, their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it this. And he goes through genealogy there. So, the walls have been finished. Now Nehemiah can sit back and he can relax. But is that what he does? No. He just moves forward in the mission, pursuing God's glory in the city. And how does he do that now? The wall is finished, Nehemiah. Here's what he does. Now, he sets up some officials so that they can take leadership to ensure the worship of the Lord will continue from this point forward to ensure that we don't get into the same mess that we're trying to get out of right now again. Verse 1 says, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors, so the wall's built, the doors are even finished now, he appoints, it says, gatekeepers, singers, and the Levites. And as you study the Old Testament law, these are worship leader type positions. The Levites were a tribe that were responsible for the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the temple. They were ministers, so to speak. And they were worship leaders. And Nehemiah says, I want you guys out front. I want you guys right out front. Let it be known that this city is a city that is all about the worship of God. Let it be known that this city is about the glory of God. Nehemiah didn't back up the flatbed truck and pull out this big 10-foot bust monument of himself and mount it into the ground right outside of the city so that all could see and remember all of his great work. No, he says, no bust, no monument to me. Very simply, I want the worship leader standing out front. And I want them declaring the glory of the Lord while working, guarding the city, because the city is to be about the glory of the Lord. As Winthrop said about Boston years ago, the city is to be a city on a hill, a beacon of light to our world. The eyes of the world are upon us. So Nehemiah says, listen, I want this city to be about the worship of the Lord, the glory of God. He moves forward, verse 2. Remember his brother Hanani from chapter 1? Verse 2, Nehemiah gives him leadership and to Hananiah, the governor of the castle. Why? It says, because Hananiah was more faithful and God-fearing than many. He was this faithful and God-fearing man. And Nehemiah wants to ensure that the leadership are going to be people who are faithful and who are God-fearing, who follow the Lord and that God is the center of their universe. He wants to ensure that the city is fixed on and led in the direction of the main thing, and that is the centrality in the worship of the Lord. How does that reflect us? We too need to be fixed on the centrality and the worship of the Lord. This is not a social club, although there are many social benefits. We are here because of the Lord. We are here to worship the Lord, to keep him central. Verse 3 
Nehemiah instructs God's people to keep the door shut and barred when the sun is down. And so you open the entrance to the city at sunrise, and then when the sun goes down, you, you close the entrance to the city. This custom continues today in some cities in the east. He also adds that some people need to stand guard at night and to guard the portions of the wall that are adjacent to your dwelling. And so if your house is here, your tent is here, you will guard that section of the wall. We're going to continue to guard this place to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Now, verses 4 and 5 will point us to the next phase of Nehemiah's mission. And that phase is this. It is returning God's people to the city. Nehemiah, verse 4, observes that though the city is physically starting to take shape and it's coming together, the people living in the city are, are very few. Remember, they've been exiled all over the place because of the Babylonian uh, captivity. And most of them have yet to return. And it's time, right? The city is ready to receive the people. It is time. Verse 5, God calls him to pull out the genealogical chart and he starts to call roll. So verses 6 through 65 are an exact record of Ezra chapter 2. It's genealogy. And Nehemiah wants to ensure that God's people return to God's city so that God's glory may be seen. So they can say, they're here, they're flourishing, it's happened. It wasn't just a building project. Some of you ever seen that? Where they'll build a beautiful apartment complex and then nobody wants to move in because of the neighborhood that it's in. And you're not saying, wow, that's a beautiful building. You're saying, wow, what a shame. This place is a mess. Are you serious? They just put millions of dollars and nobody even wants to live there. You ever seen a, a town, some of you aren't from Boston, and you see a town where they fix up Main Street and new light fixtures and they invest in and nobody cares? Nobody starts frequenting the shops. It's just a mess. Nehemiah says, no, we've got to return. Build the wall and now we have to return. And the census will go down all the way into verse 66. And now look at verse 66 with me, if you will. Every single word of Scripture is inspired by God and is useful. So every single verse in between here is the Lord's. Verse 66 says this, the whole assembly together was 42,360. That's about the size of Roslindale, the neighborhood that we're in here in Boston. I just can't get over the parallels of the scripture here, the book of Nehemiah, to what we're doing today. Jerusalem was this vibrant city of God. Boston, this vibrant city in the hub of New England, which was the hub of the Great Awakening. I mean, just, I can't get over the parallels. The same size even. Verses 67 through 69 will continue by numbering their servants, their singers, even their animals, the animals of value. Verses 70 through 72 start to record the people's financial giving to the mission. Now they're giving to the mission. They're invested. They're excited. They can see it. Now I want to read the last verse for today. Look at verse 73. It says, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So, by the seventh month, all the people are now in their towns. So if you look back to 6.15, you'll see that it was the month of Elul, right? The sixth month. And so now it says here, it's what month? It's the seventh month, right? So it took one month 
to go through the genealogy. It took one month to kind of confirm the registers to help the people sort out which towns were theirs because it's been 141 years where it was great-great-grandpa Hubert, you know, whatever, uh, at. And so they, they looked there and, and they returned, right? And they're there. And some are in the city and some are in the surrounding towns, it says. And this is just this massive victory. A month later, they're in, they're ready, they figured it all out. This is my plot of land. We're, we're building, we're there. And who led the charge? Nehemiah led the charge. And if you were in his shoes, and if I were in his shoes, the temptation would be, we did it. The seventh month, we're all back. The, the TV crews are right here. The news reporters are saying, tell me something. Enjoy your moment, man. Tell them what's going on. Well, you know, I worked really hard, and I'll tell you what, I, I remember the day when I thought it wasn't going to happen, and then it happened, and I tell you what, man, I worked hard. Nope. Instead, I want you to notice something. When Nehemiah records this victory, what's he concerned with? His name? His legacy? No, he's concerned with God's glory. Check out the bookends of chapter 7, verse 1 and verse seven, seventy-three. Both of these verses will speak to what? The Levites, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Who? The worship leaders. He says, I've got the worship leaders here at the beginning, and at the end, I've got the worship leaders out front. That's really, really important to Nehemiah, apparently. Why? Because Nehemiah is concerned with the continuing worship of God and not himself. The continuing worship of God, continuing to glorify the Lord and keep him central ensuring that we don't go follow somebody else we don't go chase after false gods which is what got them into this mess and god allowed the judgment of babylon to come in the first place because they didn't worship the lord god's city god's faith community falls into ruins listen carefully he says i'm going to set up worship leaders and we're going to worship the lord because that's what we're to be about that's what our lives are about is the centrality and the glory of the lord If not, our city will fall into ruins again. Our city will be a mess again because history repeats itself. Remember your seventh grade history teacher saying, we're learning this because you're sitting there smug. I don't want to learn this. This is stupid. History repeats itself, son. It does. Churches will be emptied and die if it's not about the glory of the Lord. In fact, this morning, you can drive around Boston. And I did that for a season. When we were preparing to start this church, we showed up to some churches and we visited other churches and you can walk inside these beautiful facilities and they're basically vacant. For some reason, they thought they needed to build a, an auditorium that could seat a thousand people, but now there's only 15 or 20 people in there. Churches that were once vibrant, no longer vibrant. Why? Because the glory of Christ left the building. They become social clubs. And they become clubs to push other agendas, whether it's political or anything else. But it should be about the glory of the Lord, the centrality of Christ. But here's some hope for you. For the first time in a long time, God has really started, it's starting to be clear that God is moving in this city. And today you can also drive around to some gymnasiums at public schools. You can drive around to buildings like this. And there are churches that are filling up rooms and vibrant. Why? Because they say, we're not going to bail on this. We're going to continue to declare 
the glory of the Lord. And we're going to center our community on him. So we can forsake the Lord and empty out and clear out, or we can continue to center ourselves on the Lord. And we can continue to see God doing what he's doing, and that is building his church. And I'm praying that that will continue. That all of us will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we would make it about Jesus and not about anyone else. It's about him. It would never be our own agenda or something that we want to spout. It would always be about the word of Jesus, which is about the glory of Jesus. And he would be central. Some of us today, you have never centered your own life on Christ. Some of us today have never said yes to Jesus. I want to bank it all on him. I want to make him the center of my world. The scripture will say, listen, you have sinned against God. You have broken yourself off from God. And God could have wiped his hands of you and said, see you later, I'm done. But instead, he in his grace comes to us, much like he in his grace came to Nehemiah, stirred his heart for the restoration of the city, and he stirs us and wants us to be restored to right relationship with him. So that if we would trust in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, which he did not have to do, but he did for us in our place, taking our punishment, if we would trust in that, then we can be restored as well. And we can center our lives on Jesus. So if you've never done that, I want to call you today to center your life on Jesus by saying yes to Jesus. I'm turning from sin. I'm turning to you. I'm turning from making it all about me. And I'm turning and I'm making it all about you. My life is about you. So as an individual, your life needs to be centered on Jesus. Today's the day for you if you've never done that. As a church, let's keep Jesus the main thing. Let's keep the Lord central. If we don't, this thing is going to fall apart. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for this great story, Lord. There's so many parallels to our lives today. And God, I pray that we would be like Nehemiah, that we would work hard to ensure that our lives are all about you, that our lives aren't rotating around self, our lives aren't rotating around all these other little idols that we set up that are going to fail us and great will be their fall and they're going to take us down with them but that we would center our lives on Jesus. Lord, you never fail us. You are always faithful. You always come through. And I'm so thankful that Nehemiah didn't give up in the midst of the opposition. But he said, no, God said it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And may we be a people who trust in you and follow you and watch it happen. Thank you that it's happening that you are restoring your city, Boston, today. That you are building the church, capital C, in Boston. It is not about our little church. It is about you and you building your church. And so thank you for our little piece in this mission that you are accomplishing. Thank you that we get to see you glorious. And God, we just pray that you would keep our eyes fixed on you. As we sang earlier today, we are prone to wander. We feel it. God, I feel it. God, thank you for your Holy Spirit inside of us. It just keeps nudging, convicting, bringing us back. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you that even if we fall, as a Christian, as many have, we all do, that you still restore us because there was nothing that we could do to earn it and there's nothing that we can do to lose it and so wherever people are at this morning lord i pray 
that they would look back to you. They would fix their eyes on you. They would call out to you. Thank you for the promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Save people this morning, please. Save us from ourselves. Because we will destroy ourselves. There's a way that seems right to a man. It seems right to make ourselves number one. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. Save us from that, Lord. Thank you for your grace that you would come down to us, that you would stir our spirits like you stirred Nehemiah, that you would save us. You be all the glory, the honor, and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.